Okay, let's practice your apology before you say it on the air. And go. Okay, hello, this is Kyone Wolf. Earlier this week, in comments made on this show, I may have given the impression that I am personally acquainted with His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, and that he has indicated that upon his death, I'll become the 15th and First Lady Dalai Lama. Stop. You didn't give that impression. You totally said that. You used the phrase hand-picked successor. Okay, pick it up from there. Upon reflection, I may have misremembered the exact nature of my relationship and communication with His Holiness. Dude, you never met the Dalai Lama. He wouldn't know you from Benedict Cumberbatch. You have to say that. Keep going. If I've offended anybody, then I'm sorry. Uh, There have been riots in seven South Asian cities, so yeah, I would say you have offended somebody. My main purpose was to honor the Dalai Lama and his good works, and in my enthusiasm for doing that, I may have been caught up in the... Let me read your quote back to you. You people are lucky I sit here reading underwriting credits when my BFF, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, has just texted me that I'll be taking over for him someday, which means I'm the embodiment of the compassion of Buddha, so bite me. Uh, The thing is, I was really drunk. So say that. It's so embarrassing. Why do we have to go through this? Why can't we just... You know, lie about ourselves and then just move on. What is the big deal about history and accuracy and truth? And then you have to apologize and everybody gets to laugh at you and go. That's just the way it is. Well, it's going to start changing when I'm the Dalai Lama. and I'm going to have a special bathroom built so I don't have to walk way down the hall and use the one the boy llamas use. I was just Skyping with Pope Francis the other day and he said. Getting in deeper. Maybe just I'll just start the show. Okay. And now he's walking back his claim about all the orcs he killed in the Battle of Gondor, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, that might have been something I read, actually, uh, as opposed to something I did. So we are going to be talking a bit about that today. Um, There's two topics that we wanted to do for the show today that kind of flowed together pretty quickly. Um, And uh, and they also fall under the rubric. This was sent to me by my friend, the artist uh, Peter Waite, uh, from Julian Barnes's novel, The Sense of an Ending, is the line, history is that certainty produced at the point where the imperfections of memory meet the inadequacies of documentation? Well, that pretty much sums up our two major topics today. First of all, uh, let me tell you who's here. Rand Richards Cooper, uh, a uh, novelist, short story writer, food critic, restaurant critic, food writer. I don't know. What else? Dad. Dad and dad. James Hanley's with us. He is uh, the be-all and end-all of Trinity Cine Studio. Actually, movies are the be-all and end-all of Trinity He makes them happen of Trinity Cine Studio. And uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg is director of development at the Mark Twain House. So that's who's here. And so our original plan was American Sniper. Way, way back, like seven days ago, we decided we'd all see American Sniper except – Several people have already seen it. And then we would discuss this kind of really problematic movie that really is – it does kind of represent this collective American gut check about Iraq. How is this story going to be told? How are we going to remember it? What's Clint Eastwood trying to say? Uh, What are people hearing Clint Eastwood say that maybe he's not saying? All of that. And then heaped on top of that, this was this – inescapable story about Brian Williams, the NBC anchor, who's also telling a story about Iraq, a story that is effectively not not true. So we're going to sort of try to combine these two things. But I think we have to start. We'll start with American Sniper and then we'll move towards uh, Brian Williams. So um, Rihanna, as we were all frenetically emailing back and forth, I think you were the first one to kind of say, 
you know, that it, it really did seem as though there were almost two movies in American Sniper. This is the story of Chris Kyle. I think most people know this by now, an actual uh, American Sniper, uh, Navy SEAL. He's now dead. Um, Eastwood seems to have one take on him and then – but then there's this other thing that's so easy to take away from the movie. Tell, give us your, your sense anyway of, of, of those – the duality there in American Sniper. Well, it's been really interesting to see the, the, the battles that have erupted over the meaning of this film. You try to figure out you know, why it is that that, that happens. Um, and if you just look at some of the first wave of criticism, it was mostly from the left by people who were viewing this as uh, really sort of warmongering, racist, right-wing American propaganda. And and people said as much. Um, the LA Times review, Amy Nicholson called it a rah-rah war on terror fantasy. Uh, and in Vox, Amanda Taub called it a Hezbollah martyr video for the Fox News set, recruitment propaganda for culture war extremists. So what's interesting to me in in the film is that I, I, it's easy – I think you can argue pretty coherently that this is not uh, a, a film that glorifies war. You can actually sort of track through the film moment by moment and plausibly construct uh, it as a kind of, in a certain sense, anti-war movie. Um, and and so to me, I see the duality of it, and we can talk about those scenes. But you know, I'm thinking about um, you know, such scenes as the the, the moment when when uh, uh, Chris Kyle's uh, Chris Kyle and uh, one of his fellow uh, soldiers are alone in a room, and the other guy begins to express some doubts about patriotism, country, God, and uh, and and Kyle says, "Well, what do you mean?" And the other guy says, "Well, I I just want to believe." In, in our mission and what we're doing here. Um, and Kyle answers with some sort of platitude about, you know, we're, we're killing savages. Now, there are plenty of moments in the film that strike me as interestingly ambiguous in, in which you can either say at these moments, oh, well, the, the film is sort of propounding this propaganda. It's saying, yes, rah, rah, war on terror, we're killing savages. Or you can say, well, the film consistently points to limitations in that point of view and to the toll that that point of view takes on a person who who is a soldier. Um, so I, I mean, I, the first thing that I would say is the reading of this film is a tug of war, in part because Eastwood, who's anything but subtle, is kind of ambiguous in in what he's doing, and that gets into the whole topic of Clint Eastwood and male American violence, which is an enormous topic <laughs> and a great one. Yeah, that, that's like a, I think that's a course that uh, James is teaching in Trinity this year. But um, <laughs> um, before we get to James, though, I mean, uh, you know, Tracy, you saw this movie. I think even before we started talking about doing mm-hmm. it on the nose. And I mean, one of the things for me, I, I'm, I'm interested just in your general reactions. But one of the things for me is about this movie is I feel as though it, it kind of holds all of its characters at arm's length to a certain degree. I mean, I wasn't even really able to bond as much as I think Eastwood wants me to bond with Chris Kyle. But then beyond him, there was really nobody else to bond with. And I was really struck by the degree to which the Iraqi characters are simply not very real. You know, I mean, even you look at a movie like The Hurt Locker, which I don't really regard as all that subtle and sophisticated a movie. But there's real Iraqis in there and they're human beings and you can sort of see things happening to them. And, and, and 
in this way anyway, I feel like Eastwood failed, which is kind of amazing when you consider that he made an Iwo Jima movie entirely from the Japanese perspective. It's like he didn't get the Iraqi perspective here at all. I think the only moment where I felt somewhat bonded to any of the Iraqi characters was when, and a, a bit of a spoiler, I suppose, was when the little boy was being tortured because his his father had helped, mm-hmm. um, had helped the soldiers and, and was essentially, not essentially, but he was killed. But that was you for know? the purpose of getting you to hate another Iraqi person. Right, exactly. More. So so that was, you know, it sort of emphasized that there there was this group of folks who, who would help, but there was such a toll that they would pay for that. So there there's still, you know, that very difficult ability that, that you had as a viewer to, to bond with them as a people. I will say his wife, um, the character of Chris Kyle's wife, I had a little easier time with, um, maybe because, you know, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, and, and being able to put myself in her shoes, I thought that was a little easier to relate to than any of the other characters. And James, I mean, for you, this film is going to represent a whole set of choices that you're going to have to make too. I mean, here it is, this kind of gigantic thing sitting out there on the horizon that you're going to have to decide whether you want to show or not. Um, You know, there have been other movies about Iraq. I mentioned The Hurt Locker. There's a bunch of others. Um, Dana Stevens mentioned a a few of them in in her piece about it that I didn't even know about. But but nothing like this. I mean, it has grossed a quarter of a billion dollars already in the month of January. It really is our first national look uh, at the Iraq conflict. And, um, and so I, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, do you feel as though this movie is a movie you want to show at Trinity Cine Studio? Do you have problems with it that, that would preclude that? Well, I do have problems with it, very serious problems. Um, the question is, for me, I mean, the, the success of this film has been kind of unexpected in the industry. It became a blockbuster that blew up one weekend uh, quite unexpectedly. And, um, I mean, part of me thinks that, okay, you have to show this because it's part of Clint Eastwood's career and uh, he's made some important films. But I also was very troubled by the film because this film represents one of those things that's becoming more and more common, which is a film that sort of purports to be um, a film, a work of art, but it's actually masquerading as a false history. And I think it's a very fraudulent film for that in that context. And um, I do see the elements. I, I mean, Letters from I- Iwo Jima, for example, I think presented a unique point of view and showed um, uh, that Clint Eastwood could really have an insight onto something that really had not been insightfully really portrayed on screen before. I got a feeling about this that he was kind of phoning it in in a way um, that that I didn't see his stamp so much on it. And that's what brings me to that ambiguity about whether one should show it or not. I mean, you could one one side of it you could say is, well, it's played so many places that everybody will have seen it. And so it might not be a wise thing to show just in terms of how many people would come. But the other, on the other hand, here we are talking about this film and it raises very important issues. And so people should perhaps see it and, and think about what's being portrayed. There are many things in it that really go to the heart of this whole thing that's the center of what we're talking about and many people are talking about, which is the veracity of memory and how it links with history and whether you can manipulate that. And you can manipulate that. Just as an example, let's say for, for, for the sake of argument, you wanted to make a film that made a point about uh, the Islamic State and you opened it with a scene of a beheading. 
you're going to get the audience in a certain position right at the very beginning, and then you can say something that might not actually be historically true. And and this American Sniper contains a lot of things like that, concatenations of events that weren't quite actually in that order. And also um, the screenwriter has taken great liberties, I think, with the way the character is written. Chris Kyle is an interesting character, and I, I don't think, um, you know, his his whole trajectory is sort of separate from the movie. But within the movie, there are, sen- there, there are sections of the movie where um, there's uh, there are false equivalencies set up. Um, there's no sort of background as to what has happened to this city. Well, it was bombed by American jets and... Uh, the people who were supposedly had left the city, as the movie says, in fact had not left the city. These were people who couldn't walk across the desert with their families. These were people who actually took refuge in their homes. They were still there. But the film implies that the only people still there are bad people, evil people who are going to kill American soldiers. And it simplifies to such an extent that it becomes almost a propaganda piece. And so that's why I find it deeply fraudulent on that level. You know, the, the, um, I think the, the reason it may seem fraudulent is that it does a set of things. It accomplishes a set of things that are geared wholly to an American domestic audience Absolutely. that is, that is yeah. interested implicitly and apparently exclusively in sort of understanding and working through their own pain. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And, and, and so if you say, oh, this is a film about you know, post-traumatic stress, about American veterans who've suffered, including the grievous loss uh, of limbs, um, there, there are ways in which Kyle's character is shown to be um, I mean, the, the wife and her dissatisfaction with his insistence on his own patriotism and his insistence on going back a second time, a third time, and a fourth time. Now, he says things to her that are sort of patriotic boilerplate. Oh, I'm doing this to defend our country. She says, no, you're not. You're not. It's gone too far. Your responsibilities are here. Your family, um, you know, these, these two kids. And so his desire for patriotic sacrifice is presented as, a, as very problematic. And also the toll that having killed 163 people, he probably killed more, but that's what he's credited with, sort of the moral and psychological toll that it takes on him is sort of delved into and explored. But we never get the slightest inkling really of what it's like to be on the other side of these very violent transactions. Um, and uh, you know, in that sense, it is, it is absolutely and exclusively a film that, that, that takes our actions there as a given yes, exactly. and, yeah. and, uh, and, and never I seeks – I mean it does, it, it does seek to question them a little bit. Like I just refer to one other moment and this is an interesting one because people have struggled over the interpretation of it. His uh, fellow soldier is killed. The one who had uttered the doubts mm-hmm. is then killed in battle. At his funeral, his grieving mother reads a letter that he wrote, the other soldier, expressing great doubts about the merits and the morality of the Iraqi war. After the funeral, Chris Kyle and his wife are driving home and his wife says to him, I want to know what you think about that letter. He doesn't want to talk about it. I want to know what you think. And he says that letter killed him. That letter is why he died because he let go and it killed Mm -hmm. him. Now – 
this is I referred to Eastwood's ambiguity in this movie. Is that is that comment by Chris Kyle to be believed, or is it a kind of almost delusional denial? Is that patriotism as a, as a, as a kind of almost hysterical denial? But I mean, I think it puts us in this kind of Harold Bloom Derrida place about sort of who creates meaning out of any given moment like that. So Tracy, you as a wife and mother are listening there, listening to. All, both of the things that, that Rand just described and thinking, well, well, yeah, Sienna Miller, she's kind of speaking not only for me and for her but for some kind of rational response to the situation. Whereas I would imagine that there are numbers of sort of would-be alpha males watching this movie going, oh, what does well, she that, know? Yeah, what does she know? She's distracting him from what he's right. really supposed to be she's doing. She's being right? selfish. She's being whatever. Now, I – you know, I think that that moment in the letter was very poignant also because I saw it two ways also, you know, where do you take it on face value that he really believed that, you know, doubting the mission is what gets what got him killed because, you know, the moment he doubted it was over. Or is he trying to convince himself? Is he trying to convince himself because he has these own inner doubts and has the, the same complex feelings, you know, and, and trying to justify his his wanting to go back? You know, saying that, you know, if I if I doubt, I'm going to get myself killed. So I can't doubt. You know, I can't give in to it either. So I, I thought that was a very good point that that moment is very interesting, you know, as a whole. The, so. the way in which I feel – I mean, I think Clint Eastwood is in sort of two different places here. And if you look at the interviews he's given, he talks about the fact that he, you know, sort of went through as a kid World War II and then he was – driving drafted for Korea and there's all these wars keep coming and he just says, you know, it just never seems to stop uh, and he's got a lot of questions about war. But they, then he also said, but I had to tell this guy's story and I had to tell it to a certain degree from his point of view. And, and I think we all have a feeling here about which of those two missions <laughs> kind of prevailed. But, you know, one of the ways in which I really felt kind of badly lied to upon reflection and upon, upon doing some more reading was the, that first scene where you see, in fact, uh, Chris Kyle. He's up on a roof. He's got uh, in his sniper sights first uh, a woman and a boy. Uh, the woman hands something to the boy. This is, I think this is actually part of the trailer, so most people probably have seen it. It looks like a grenade. He's not 100 percent sure. It's a, it's a grenade. He's radio, radioing to some other command post saying, are you say, seeing the same thing I'm seeing? He's trying to make a decision to shoot him. There's a guy sitting next to him up there, a sort of spotter who's going, well, if you're wrong, you're going to Leavenworth. And, and as a number of commentators have pointed out, you know who's in Leavenworth for doing something like that? Nobody. Nobody, <laughs> Nobody is in Leavenworth for doing something like that. That, in fact, you know, uh, you know, uh, uncounted, but, you know, probably more than 100,000 civilians died in Iraq during that operation. And, and I mean, the amount of of punishment or reflection or anything that 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 we did about that whole process uh, is is minimal and certainly a, a sniper in that situation who's making his best call is not going to go to Leavenworth even if he shoots a little kid for the wrong reason because um, well, he's trying to shoot him for the right reason if there is such a thing. Yeah, I think that that goes to the heart of what a screenwriter, what a filmmaker, what somebody creating a work of art does with something that is related to history and fact is that you can create character which creates a wrong impression. Uh, I think that's that's a major issue with this film uh, and particularly that comment about Leavenworth. But also there's a thing at the beginning which actually could take the film in a totally different direction, which is him as a kid with his father and his father saying, well, you would divide the world into wolves and sheep and sheepdogs. And uh, he says it in a very threatening manner to his kids and um, the idea of uh, that really it can be read as 
this is what makes a good sniper kind of thing. This is what, you know. This, But the other way you could read it is that look what a parent can do to distort a child's view of the world. Exactly. Which creates and, the and, future. And that's the same, the same duality. And, yeah. and the father says, as the wife looks on, Quietly but clearly, abjectly, yeah. the father says, "We don't raise sheep in this family. If you're a wolf, I'm gonna, I'm gonna beat you. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if you're a sheep, what we do is raise sheep dogs, and that is, you protect the sheep from the wolves. So there's this moral template that's set in that has clear ramifications for the for the war. But it's it's unclear how to read that scene now. But is there any, any argument to be made, Rand, for the, the that that Eastwood? has done a fabulous job because he's created moral ambiguity on the screen. He's created these scenes, these multiple scenes that we've just talked about here that can be read a number of different ways. Yes, and that going back even to the films he didn't direct, but they made his character in the Spaghetti Westerns, the Dirty Harry movies. I mean, now Pauline Kael, the great film critic, called the Dirty Harry movies fascist or crypto-fascist films. Now, and, and you have to read those in, in, the, in the context of sort of 60s and 70s liberalism. Well, what did people say about those films? They said, it's just a movie. Well, you you a, know, like, well, like you should see it as just a movie okay, and not... But there was, but but, there was but a lot was, of political and cultural commentary about what Dirty Harry represented. Absolutely. I, I actually watched, totally. I watched but, a do- Dirty Harry double feature in New Haven in a, an urban theater where I was almost – a packed theater in which I was one of the very, very, very few white people. And it was very interesting to listen to – I mean and it was one of those urban audiences that talks back to the movie. I mean they talked back to the movie all the way through it. And they were actually – they were seeing Dirty Harry through a, a Pauline Kael lens. I mean they were making fun of it and having a grand old time and, and laughing at it. But they, they certainly saw this. Right. Uh, the way that you're describing it. But there's no but, doubt, however, sort of vi- whatever the vicarious vengefulness that we're invited to take take part in, to participate in, in the Dirty Harry movies, at the same time, it's clear Dirty Harry himself, Harry Callahan, is very much damaged goods. And all of the violence-dealing male avatars of American front- frontier <laughs> power that Clint Eastwood has portrayed have, have all been, to a greater or lesser extent, damaged. When you get to films like Unforgiven, and I would argue in its own way, Mystic River, he's, he's, he actually is really exploring the sheer pathology and, and, and moral cost of dishing out violence. And there's, there's part of that in this film, but it's ultimately overwhelmed. Well, that's the problem. That, that, that by is patriotism. the problem. Yeah, it's overwhelmed also by this sort of just a movie syndrome that I'm getting at is that you really have he has created an idea there in his filmmaking trajectory. That um, really he's making like Dirty Harry, for example, is is responding to investors who wanted to make a successful film. He's doing something with a character that at the time was something totally new. It was really in your face. It fits with his character, all of those things. And it's actually creating societal change by the, the these enormous sort of things that, that, that social waves that happen as a result of culture changing. In the case of American Sniper, many people, I think, are going to go to that and take things away from it. That even if it, even if uh, you take the most benign view that, uh, that that Eastwood is trying to say something critical and trying to say something that is actually getting behind what's going on, it's still going to have an effect beyond that, which is that the the movie itself that appears to be something okay, people are going to a movieplex to watch this and be entertained and. Maybe they'll be shocked by it. 
but it really has an effect on people, and it has an effect that is very complicated by the fact that many people take away from it that it's history. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it, it's, it's sort of taking the concept of, uh, you know, Pauline Kael's talking about fascism and, and Dirty Harry and, and his early career. I agree it's really true that those things are there. And the question is how it, it, it goes right on that knife edge of films being art but also being something of a social current and, that has an effect. Also, I think the ambiguity in the movie also lends itself not to necessarily – critical thinking. I don't think everybody right. is going to mm-hmm. walk in and say, well, that really made me think. I think yeah, when you're looking point. at a topic yeah. like this, they're going to take away what they want. They're either going to walk yeah, away... Yeah, they're either going to walk away angry, thinking that it was trying to say something that they disagree with, or they're going to walk away saying, that's exactly what it is, you know, rah-rah America, because that's what they want it to be. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure if, if his goal was to be ambiguous and to, to provoke thought whether that's really going to be successful What here. he says over and over again is that his goal is to be non-political. And, and, and he says, you know, this is about soldiers and what they experience. And, you know, and I understand Eastwood's impulse along those lines, but there's a huge problem, not least because, as James keeps saying, um, the film is grossly misleading, at least in terms of just the causality of history. You mm-hmm. can't, if you're watching this movie and you don't know anything about what actually happened, what you see is, oh, attack on American embassies in East Africa, a guy enlists. Uh, attack on uh, the World Trade Center, a guy gets married <laughs> and, uh, and then immediately goes off to fight in Iraq. Right. There's an inescapable causality that suggests the very thing that we know is not true and yet unbelievably may still and in fact from now on increasingly be believed by well, Americans. Well, consider, that that's why we were there. Exactly. And consider what's happening now with the Islamic State. The Islamic State is exactly directly a result of an invasion of a country that uh, was on a fraudulent basis about non-existent weapons of mass destruction. And who are the people who are driving the Islamic State? They're the original people with Saddam's army. And so you know, you can't get to that from this movie you can't you, – you know, and so how many people are actually going to go to that and find out? And so when we're suddenly told, OK, we've got to go now boots on the ground to go and chase after ISIS, that, OK, this is, uh, this is because. And then people have that sense of what is because that will be completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Some, some of my thinking about this is a little bit borrowed from and shaped by – um, Dana Stevens and, and Stephen Metcalf on, on a Slate podcast. But you know, it really does seem to me that American filmmakers these days treat history the way Georgia Pacific treats a, a, a stand of trees. You know, it's like something <laughs> to be sort of cut down and processed and turned into the equivalent of paper towels. And so what you have is again and again these – and we're in the middle of a season where all, there are all these movies. Like there's Selma. There's The Imitation Game. There's this movie. Um, and where the filmmakers invariably say, yes – I'm mining history, but I also have this story to tell. You know, I have to be able to tell this story. And so you, you, they tell the story of Alan Turing all wrong, you know, and I mean they don't get the history right. They also don't get the personal story that they purport to want to tell even remotely right. You know, <laughs> they decide that they need to make LBJ worse than he is in order – because they have this story they want to tell about Selma that they need to tell a certain way. And, and then you get it with this movie too. And I'm, I'm finding this kind of exhausting, <laughs> you know. Either make a movie that really has right. some kind yeah. of respective history or tell some 
some other damn story and keep your mitts off of and it. And you know, Colin, what's I think damning about a film like this, if you, if you look at what's been cleaned up and how, you see that it's there's been a lot of action both on the historical side that we've been talking about, but also from what I've read. I, ha- I haven't read Kyle's memoir, but from what I've read about him and his life, he's a much more problematic mm-hmm. character than uh, Bradley. And by the way, oh, yeah. I think Bradley Cooper did a great job it's in the movie. But, but yet his character from has been significantly cleaned up. He's less personally violent than Kyle was. He doesn't express gratuitous pleasure in the act of killing, right. which at, at times Kyle did from mm-hmm. what I've read yeah. of his memoir. Now, why can't we have and how much better would the film be if we showed a character in in – all of his moral complexity and ambiguity, who did protect his fellow soldiers very effectively and skillfully, yet in, in other ways could be a real bastard and, and in, in some ways a captive to a certain code of American male violence. It's, it's, it's all very cleaned up. And mm-hmm. it makes you think, oh, man, there are so many ways in which this could have been a much better movie. All right, let's uh, take a quick call from Middlefield, then we're going to uh, take a little break here. We're going to back with a little bit more about Brian Williams. Hello, caller. Mike, you're on the air. Oops, sorry. You got moved over or something happened. Uh, hi, Mike, you're on the air. There you go. Start over again. Yes, I, I, I think there's a very basic failing of American knowledge acquisition at play here as well, which is when you occupy people's countries, they fight you. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, this, maybe this is uh, part of the way that Americans, you know, the way history is done in America, especially, Colin, I think you made this point, but especially as it relates to war and foreign wars. And, you know, the more we call Chris Kyle a hero um, for, you know, maybe he did some heroic things in protecting his soldiers, but the more we call those who occupy heroes, I think the the, the, the more sort of, act of forgetting we do, uh, and we, we fail to remember that just uh, people will fight you when you occupy their country. Um, I think so. I think Eastwood's movie is, uh, is, is uh, one in a long strand of, 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 of that trend in American it's a, great, it's a great point, Mike. They will fight you, and sometimes they'll even shoot an RPG at a helicopter that's 30 minutes ahead of one of your most famous news anchors. So when we come back, we'll talk about that. You signed your name forever and I'll never leave your side I remember all that makes everything alright If I never think about it, I go almost every night You tell me straight then ask me why do I keep holding on I hold my breath then I say I remember All right, we're back with the nose. Tracy Wu Fastenberg from the Mark Twain House, James Hanley from uh, Trinity Cine Studio, Rand Richards Cooper, uh, writer uh, and critic. All right, so um, we're switching there, but as James and Rand pointed out to us, Tracy, in uh, emails this week, not switching that much. That um, that the story of Brian Williams, and, and I think most people are familiar with it now. I will attempt to quickly summarize it. Uh, the famous NBC news anchor before he was a news anchor, sort of in those years when he was uh, making his bones, as they say, um, he was uh, in Iraq as part of the embedded journalistic fraternity there, uh, and. Um, he has over the years told a story about being in a convoy of helicopters which took RPG fire. Uh, on occasion, he has told it uh, where he was in the helicopter that was struck. Um, and, and none of that seems to be true. I mean, not only was he not in the helicopter that was struck, but he was not in one of the nearby helicopters from the, the best that anybody can figure out, piecing together stories by 
pretty much, with maybe one exception, everybody else involved, he was in a convoy of helicopters that passed this convoy, but uh, wasn't wasn't present, wasn't around uh, when the uh, the shots were fired. Uh, did get stuck uh, in a had to land and, and wait out a, a sandstorm, but but that was about it. Um, and so. Uh, Williams was called upon earlier this week to apologize and retract his his stories on, on his own newscast. He did it, but he did it in a way – I mean he made that sort of fateful mistake that we see again and again, which is if you're going to apologize, if you're going to retract, do all of it. Don't try to minimize it. And he seems to have made the problem worse by leaving open the way he did it, kind of the possibility that, that maybe part of the story was true when in fact none of it is. So – First of all, Tracy, can Brian Brian Williams – I mean people typically get punished a little for this but not permanently punished. I mean can Brian Williams go forward? Can he still be Brian Williams? I love Brian Williams. I'm going to start out with that. I do too. I I do think that he can um, for several reasons. Number one, you know, he didn't tell the story – particularly for personal gain, you know, as we talked about in some of our emails back and forth. You know, it wasn't Hillary Clinton. It wasn't uh, Richard Blumenthal, you know, on the campaign trail trying to make a point there. You know, he was doing this as part of a tribute to somebody. Sure, there is the personal gain of, you know, the the street cred of having been in the trenches, you know, and having gone through this and being a real war reporter. Um, but I, I think if you really boil it down, he's he's done a lot in his career. This is not the only moment where he was a true reporter. Although he did tell so, it on David Letterman. I mean, he told it some in some know, other he, context where he, he was mainly making himself look good. That, like, that's true. Or dashing or but, something. But in some of those contexts, mm-hmm. the, the story was changing. Some of it was closer to the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, yes, he could have done a better job apologizing, saying, you know, clearly I screwed up. Um, instead, it was sort of like, well, my my memory has been sort of, you know, faded, tinkered with, whatever. But at the same time, if you're about to tell a story that, that's that significant, perhaps you go back and, and you review you, oh, you know, the scads of blogs and video, t- you know, video reels that have you telling the story to just make sure that you've got some of your bits straight. Because 12 years later, of course, you're not going to remember everything. But I do think he can come back. Um, James, for you, this is the symptom of a disease. Um, and part of the disease is what we talked about in the first segment. By the way, if you want to uh, chime in on this, and I know a lot of people have opinions about this story, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. Um, but to you, this is at least partly a symptom of the disease of embeddedness, the idea that the, 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 the covenant of journalists agreeing to monitor uh, and report on what the military does uh, in, in the heat of war was sort of violated by this partnership that was achieved pre-Iraq invasion. Yeah, I think that that really is the root of it. I mean, I remember reporters who were really good who were in Vietnam who were actually traveling with soldiers who were actually bringing back a story that wasn't always very favorable to the people planning the war and it was very real. And I think that the people the people who were planning wars uh, since then learned from that and then they in, they developed this idea of being embedded and it also coincided, I think, with something sort of semi-fatal for journalism, which was celebrity journalism, where the personality of the reporter becomes more important than the whatever they're reporting on. And so I think there's also uh, – I mean that opens the door to ego and uh, massaged memory in self-aggrandizing and telling the story based on your view of it rather than perhaps telling the facts. And so when the Iraq war came along, 
the only way that journalists were really part of it was to be embedded and so they were part of the they were part of the war effort effectively and this coincided also with yet another thing that was happening which was that the storytelling that was appearing in newspapers including the new york times was starting to be sort of groupthink uh, exercises in in listing all of the things that happened, and you mixed it up with press releases. You you had a story that would be written by three or four reporters. Um, you lost that sense of the reality, and I think the reporters perhaps did too. And so, one of the things about Brian Williams that's really interesting. I actually think he will survive this because, if nothing else, by sheer force of personality. But I'm not even sure that's a good thing in a way, <laughs> because. <laughs> It's going to teach other people that, yeah, you can do this and get away with it. And the fact is that I don't think that he planned this, of course, but it goes to the plasticity of memory, which we're learning more and more about, about how memories are formed and how you your your own particular perception and the way you remember it can change the facts. Uh, and so you, you, you end up with a person who's in a uniquely visible position who actually fabricates something and then makes a sort of half apology and he's clearly relying on his celebrity to get him past it which makes me uncomfortable about that as well um, and I, I sort of think now, you know, somebody's going to think of the idea, well, hey, you know, we can't trust any of these people. So let's fill the air with bumblebee-sized drones that are recording <laughs> everything to YouTube so that we can go back and fact-check every time, which, of course, will be a disaster in itself. Um, Rand, I'm sure you have. You're formulating a whole bunch of responses, although maybe I can get you to incorporate one more into them, uh, which is I, I do feel as though – as, as appalling as a lot of this is, th- there'll be sort of a bitter irony to me if Brian Williams is punished more harshly for polishing up his war stories than the people like Judith Miller who actually misreported the circumstances which led us into the war in Iraq and got all these hundreds of thousands of people killed. I mean, the one thing you can say about Brian Williams is so far nobody's died as a result of this. Right, you know, but it's, it's, it's often the case that the, that the person uh, who scapegoated represents a very trivialized form of things that are being elsewhere ignored and that are much more serious. Um, I would just, I, lo- I like Brian Williams a lot. My nine-year-old daughter loves him. It was her New Year's resolution that she will meet Brian Williams this year. She watches the news every night. Um, and I would just say in his defense, uh, at least initially, this is something we all do to a greater or lesser extent. You know, there's the person you knew 20 years ago in a certain capacity who goes on to be famous and you find uh, 20 years later the stories that you're telling about your association with that person have bulked up to some extent what the extent of of that association actually was. There was some basketball player, it might have been Connie Hawkins, I forget it, who said, you know, the the older I get, the the greater I was. (laughs) And so to some extent we we all do that. So then the question becomes what do you have to gain from that? And I think Tracy was just right to say that, look, this is not someone campaigning for office who, when he lies about his military record, is trying to do so to win votes. The question then becomes, well, why did he do this? And this is where it gets interesting and symptomatic uh, in a way that I think James was tilting at. Now, I I was a kid in the 60s. I grew up in the 70s. I was a teenager in the 70s. So my entire formative years were were during the the Vietnam War. And it's for someone of, of, of that age, the the kind of idiom of of honoring the fallen warriors 
that we are now living in post 9-11 is is often just kind of a shock. And we grew up during Vietnam at a time when we came subsequently to realize, you know, soldiers were unfairly reviled and and not appreciated for the the dreadful situation that they'd been put in in Vietnam. What happened back then was essentially the political critique of our foreign policy overwhelmed our recognition of our civic duty – toward our patriotic soldiers. Arguably, we have gone very far in the other direction. And I think this is what both Eastwood's film and the Brian Williams memory snafu illustrate. To some extent now, the, the, the cult of the fallen warrior, the sacrifices made for patriotism have all but obliterated the possibility for that kind of political critique that would simultaneously say, we do appreciate your sacrifice, but... This effort was monstrously misguided and it is patriotic in fact to say that. It's very hard to say that now. So Brian Williams, you know, what, he, what he represents to me is the journalism, the journalist who is, is wholly captive to that sort of code of the warrior. In, his, in essence, he's really very much like Clint Eastwood. He's sort of doing his own version of American Sniper and he gilds the lily in order to actually cozy up to our to our warriors. That's true, and that's the very nature of embedding that you become part right. of what you're reporting, so you can't report objectively anymore. And it was a great word choice when they called it embedding. I mean, right. they yes, were really absolutely. kind of. It's uh, a perfect it's metaphor. It's, visual, o- it's an yeah. ominous <laughs> metaphor. Yeah. It is yeah. for, <laughs> exactly for journalism. Right. Let me grab a quick call here. We're going to run out of time pretty quickly here, but uh, and we were going to talk about Harper Lee too, and we're out, we may be not able to do that. But uh, here's Elia uh, from New Haven. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. You know, you you pointed out the possibility of. Uh, Brian Williams getting uh, punished more harshly than than people like like uh, Judith Miller, but I would I would compare him to Dan Rather, who got fired for what was uh, essentially a uh, probably a fairly true story about uh, George Bush's National Guard record, and he got he got fired for that, and uh, Brian Williams is, is so far is going to get away with a, a total fabrication and embellishment. Yeah, although it's not it's not clear what's going to happen to Brian Williams, um, and with Dan Rather, I'm just a big Dan Rather fan too, and that was I mean Oscar Wilde described fox hunting as the unspeakable in pursuit of the inedible, uh, and what the, what CBS did in, the, in their pursuit of George W. Bush was kind of. Kind of along those lines. Um, all right, so um, we might have to stop on that note anyway. So we're really sorry we didn't get to Harper Lee, but uh, maybe we can work her into the endorsement somehow. We'll take a break and we'll be back. I might have made it up. The worst part of the new Harper Lee novel? When Boo Bradley attends his high school reunion. Today's show was produced by Colin and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Kelsey Bissell. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Gregory Peck. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff either taking RPG fire in a helicopter or not enjoying their snacks in first class, visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday's show, time to scramble. And now, 
back to the nose. That means we're not even sure what the Monday show is yet. But we like to sort of plan it on the fly after the weekend's news. Time for endorsements. Tracy Wu Fastenberg from the Mark Twain House. What have you got for us? All right. On February 12th, uh, the Mark Twain House Museum is bringing B.J. Novak to the auditorium at Aetna. Um, if you don't know who he is, he's an author, an actor, a director. If you don't know who he is, he was the Ryan the intern on The Office. And he has a best-selling children's book, The Book with No Pictures, right now. So that is February 12th at 7 p.m. Um, I also have to endorse, since we are in the thick of winter, which has finally descended upon us with um, a lot of fury, uh, be careful out there. Wear proper shoes from somebody who broke their ankle last year on ice um, and somebody who was also almost hit twice today by people who couldn't see around snowbanks. Um, be careful in the winter weather. Be smart and take care of each other as well. We had somebody who came and plowed our driveway while we were away, um, and that was a really nice treat. So be kind to each other. Be kind to winter. Wolfie and I would like to just um, kind of uh, endorse in, in Remora-like propinquity to your endorsements, Yak Tracks, which both of us wear on our feet uh, on slippery days. The Yak Tracks are great. There are these I sort of... to get me some of those. Yeah, yeah. they really are terrific. And they really, they are the difference between slip and fall and walk and smile. <laughs> All right. Uh, James, what have you got? A couple of things. Um, one is uh, we're bringing back uh, the Academy Award nominee uh, Polish film Ida by Paweł Pawlikowski, um, which is an absolute amazing sort of shining mar- masterpiece of small... Uh, spare film uh, in black and white, beautifully done, and it has to be seen on the big screen. It does. I, it, I saw it at Trinity. That's where I saw it, and that's uh, that's where you should see it. I agree. Yeah, it's running Sunday through Wednesday. And the other thing, I just wanted to say how excited I am with all the attention that's being paid to transportation and design of cities and the fact that we need transit that actually works in Connecticut, uh, all of this. Um, and I would just recommend a book that I think is about four or five years old by Peter Norton called Fighting Traffic, which is a really fascinating book that really teaches you about how our cities and how our transportation system really got uh, distorted in the service of one machine, which is the automobile, and to the exclusion of all sorts of other things like places to gather for people or transit that works and things like that. It's a very practical book and really fascinating to read. And I would urge everybody to pay attention to this issue because this may be a sort of golden moment when everybody thinks that something has to change about the fact that, you know, so much of Connecticut, you have to jump in a car to do anything. And it would be so nice to have a system which had choices. Great episode of Where We Live About This today. Some guy named Norman was on there. He made a lot of sense. He was <laughs> that was James's husband, actually. Um, all right. So what have you got, Ray? I'm going to first endorse having a bit of skepticism about the Harper Lee book. And, and I'm saying that as someone who loved and still loves To Kill a Mockingbird, the book that's coming out, when I first heard that a book was coming out, I thought, oh, it's something that she worked on much later, and we're going to get to see that. It turns out to be, as, as most people know by now, an early draft, a first draft written in a very different way from a different point of view of To Kill a Mockingbird. As such, it's of great, of great interest to anyone who read the book. And, but to me, I, 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 just, I worry that it's being brought out because um, she's 88 and quite infirm, and, and people who are manning the empire – that is, her, her, her publishing life uh, are making this happen because they know. I mean, it's already number one on Amazon pre-orders. Right. They know it's going to make millions and millions of dollars. My and her, her very protective sister died not long right. ago, and suddenly this right. is happening. And my, my guess it's going to be very disappointing in comparison just in terms of literary quality with To Kill a Mockingbird. And, uh, and so interest in reading it? Absolutely. Will I read it? Of course. But I, I just think people shouldn't expect it to be 
anywhere nearly as good as To Kill a Mockingbird. If it were, it would have been published. Um, so it's, it's a preparatory and apprentice work. But the book I am going to endorse, and I'll do it in the context of the conversation we had today, is a book of stories written by an Iraqi war veteran named Phil Clay, K-L-A-Y. It's called Redeployment. And it's, uh, he, he was a soldier in, in Iraq, and he writes uh, from different points of view, both of enlisted men and officers and of various members of the U.S. military establishment sent over to do their business there. And it captures some of the things that I think are very much missing from American Sniper. One of the stories in it reminded me of Michael Herr's great book, Dispatches. It's called um, Money as a Weapons System. And even the title will 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 clue you into the perspective it operates from. Redeployment by Phil Clay. Terrific book. Randy and I are both reading a lot of books right now because we're going to do a show about the uh, the morning news tournament of books uh, coming up in March. So I'll endorse a book too. And I can, I can peg it to American Sniper in an odd way uh, to the sheep, wolves, and sheepdogs. Uh, if you didn't get enough sheep, wolves, and sheepdogs. Well, I know what's coming now. <laughs> read All the Birds Singing by Evie Wilde, which I'm reading right now. I, I'm almost done, so I think I can endorse it. And it, it is a book that will seep into your dreams. <laughs> I mean, it did last night. It's I, mesmerizing. Yeah, I had an All the Birds Singing dream last night. I finished night. it today. This is about a woman who's, uh, it, well, it, it, it toggles back and forth between this woman's punishing experience as a younger woman in Australia, the, the sexual prisoner of this rather horrible old man, uh, and her disconcerting and discomforting life running her own small sheep farm on an island off the coast of England uh, where strange things are happening. And, and, and well, I will stop. It's both funny and, and wonderful and disturbing and mysterious. All the birds singing. All the birds, comma, singing. By, by Evie Wilde. Evie Wilde. All right. Thanks very much to Rand Richards Cooper, to uh, James Hanley, to Tracy Wu Astenberg. We'll be back on Monday. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury. Hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. I sincerely hope Harper Lee's second novel is a huge success because if it isn't, man, her career is over.